few weeks ago, uh, we started a sermon series looking at different prophecies that foretold the birth of Jesus Christ. Uh, two weeks ago, I opened out the sermon series talking about the prophet Jeremiah and how he foretold details about Jesus coming from the line of King David. Uh, last week, you heard from Jim, and he talked about how Jesus would come uh, from a virgin birth, from Mary, and this came from the prophet Isaiah. And today, we're going to look at the prophet Micah. Uh, Micah, he foretold events about Jesus coming from an insignificant place, and he would rescue his people. So turn with me now to Micah chapter 5, beginning with verse 1. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem, Epaphratha, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace." Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation, for prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. As I read through Micah 5, it made me think of a rescue plan. And have you ever in your life been in need of a rescue now, you have never heard this story from me. I've been your pastor for nine years, and I've yet to share it with you. But uh, something happened to me on October 14, 1984. I was two and a half years old. And every year around that time, my family of six, I was the youngest of four kids, every year we would go on an annual hike to celebrate my mom's birthday. This year, in 1984, we happened to go to Laurel Falls, which is a, a great hike in the Smokies. And if you've ever been to Laurel Falls, you will know that most of that hike is paved. Well, that day, when I was two and a half years old, my, my parents were able to put me in a small stroller and hike me up Laurel Falls, up to the falls. And on our way to the falls... It was about two-thirds of the way there. My family decided just to take a break, to just stop for a moment, and, and to look out into the mountains and see the beauty, and even to look down to see how far we had gone up. Well, my family was about 10 yards from me. I'm still in the stroller, and they're on the other side looking out, and as a two-and-a-half-year-old, I was pretty rambunctious and restless, and I decided to get out of this stroller myself. So I got out of the stroller, and I end up getting to the edge of the cliff. Well, my mom and dad were about 10 yards away from me. And my mom, she looks back to see how I'm doing, and she said it was like the twinkling of an eye. She noticed I had gotten out of this small stroller, and I was on the edge of the cliff because there was no guardrail. And all of a sudden, I took one step back, and I fell down a mountain. My mom sees me 
and her motherly instincts set in, they kick in, and she jumps off the mountain too, after me, to get me. She said we had tumbled and tumbled and tumbled, had gone hundreds and hundreds of yards away from where we were. And she said things were happening so fast that she wasn't near me, she could only get glances of me as we were rolling and rolling and rolling and rolling. We hit tree after tree after tree, branch after branch after branch, until finally we get to this ledge, and there's a big pile of leaves that stop us. Well, again, we had gone hundreds of yards, and we couldn't see my dad and my other siblings. We were so far down. And my dad, his instincts kicked in, and he said, I've got three other kids here. I can't just leave them. And so he starts yelling for help. He's yelling at us to see where we were, to see if we were okay. He's in panic mode. And he didn't know what to do. Well, it turns out, again, I don't remember any of this because I'm two and a half. My mom, my dad, my, my siblings, they all remembered it. And it was interesting to hear their take of what happened. And my sister reminded us that, <laughs> that they were scared to death. But all of a sudden, out of nowhere comes this football team. It was a college football team that was training. I think they had an off Saturday. And so they were training that weekend, and they had a medical nurse with them. And the medical nurse comes. My dad tells them the story. Then he starts making his way down because he knows my other siblings were taken care of to help. And this is what my sister Heather said about the event. She said there was a football team in training. They had a medical trainer who was trying to calm us all down. Dad was also trying to calm us down and told everyone frantically what had happened. Then the players, they came up with this plan. The biggest players held on to a large tree trunk, and other players locked arms all the way down the mountain to reach us. That's how my mom and I were able to get back to where we were. It was this football team that showed up. I kid you not. We get up there, and the nurse, she does a thorough evaluation of us as best as she could with what she had, and she was checking for shock, for broken bones, for you name it. And by God's grace, we just had scratches and bruises. That was it. No concussion, nothing. It turns out that my mom and dad ended up going back to that trail months later, and just about 200 yards ahead of us, was a steep jump off into rocks. If we had gone just two, three hundred yards ahead, I would be dead. And if my mom jumped, she would have been dead too. Now, it seems hard to imagine. Again, I don't remember it. But it's interesting even hearing my brother. He said, the only thing that really flashed through my mind was, I just lost my brother. And oh, wait a second, it looks like I lost my mother. <laughs> So in my mind, I'm thinking, who is going to fix all my boo-boos, and who am I going to be able to pick on and tease? He said, it was a terrible feeling. We get back up after the football team helped us, and my sister Heather was so glad that we were okay, so relieved. And then after she realized we were okay, she got mad at me because I was holding on to her favorite doll, and I lost her doll, obviously, because I'm falling down a mountain. I think she's forgiven me, but it took a while to forgive me for that. I share this crazy story with you, true story, because I was in need of a rescue. And fortunately, my mom rescued me. 
fortunately, God had this football team, college football team, rescue us. It was an amazing event in my life that I don't even remember. What about you? Have you ever had, maybe not this crazy, but have you ever been in a situation where you were in need of a rescue? As we look at Micah chapter 5, we will realize quickly in verse 1 that the people of God would be in need of a rescue. During the prophet Micah's days, the people were experiencing moral chaos. There was great moral and spiritual decline for the nation of Israel. What was going on in Micah's day was that the people, the poor, they were in need. They were exploited. They were taken advantage of. They had their property taken from them. They didn't even have a hearing in court. And the rich were, were in the advantage because the government leaders, they, they valued the rich. And they took care of the rich. The people were being mistreated. The rich were being favored. Priests were promiscuous. Leaders weren't leading, and the people weren't obeying. And because of the wickedness of the nation of God, God sent his prophet Micah to give them some terrible news. That in just a little while, God's people would have an outside army who would invade their homeland, and he would even mock their king. Verse 1, we read, Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid upon us with a rod. They strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. What Micah is foretelling is a prophecy that would happen about 100 years after he gave these words that an Assyrian army led by King Sennacherib would come and he would lay siege upon the people of God. He would make them scatter from their homeland and he would even mock southern Judah's king, King Hezekiah. And even though he would not destroy southern Judah, he would make his mark to even southern Judah. This was to come, and it was all because of the wickedness of God's people. So the people of Micah's day were in need of a rescue. So as we look at the rest of our text here this morning, we're going to address three questions. Who would rescue the people, and where would he come from? When would the rescuer come? And then what would the rescuer do for the people of God? So who would be this rescuer, and where would he come from? We know in verse 2 that there would be a rescuer who would be of divinity. He would be a divine rescuer, one who would be from the days of old. And he would come from a small town of Bethlehem. You may not know this, but there are similarities of Abraham Lincoln and Ronald Reagan. And the main similarity of the two of them is that both of these presidents came from small towns. Abraham Lincoln, he came from Hodgenville, Kentucky. Hodgenville has 3,226 people in it. Ronald Reagan, he came from Tampico, Illinois. Tampico has 750 people to its town. Both presidents, who were pretty successful, had pretty successful terms and were pretty popular in our nation's history, they came from insignificant towns. In the same way, this divine rescuer would come from an insignificant place, this little town of Bethlehem. Verse 2, but you, O Bethlehem, Epaphrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Micah foretold that one day, As the people were in exile after King Sennacherib would come and laid siege on their their nation, 
One day, a savior would come, a rescuer would come from an insignificant town of Bethlehem. Why would the savior come from such an insignificant place? There's really two reasons. The first reason is the Messiah would come from the line of David. And David, the shepherd king, was raised in the town of Bethlehem. You can read about that in 1 Samuel chapter 16. When Jesus came to this earth, the Jews, the Jewish leaders, they even knew this Old Testament truth that a Messiah would come from Bethlehem. John 7.42 tells us, Does not the scripture say that Christ will come from David's family and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? So we know in this text that Jesus would come from the line of David from this small town of Bethlehem. The second reason why Jesus came from this small town is that God often uses insignificant, ordinary things to accomplish his greater purposes and to display his strength, his power, and his majesty. Just think for a moment as you journey through the Bible about all the insignificant people and insignificant places that God used to display his power. Go back to David. David was yet a small shepherd boy that nobody knew. And when the prophet Samuel came to anoint David as king, he didn't know it was David, so he looked at all, of, all at David's older brothers who were stronger and more experienced and even more handsome than David. But yet God had other plans and said, I don't want David's brothers to be king, I want David. So Samuel ended up finding David and anointing this young shepherd boy to be king one day. Think about all the disciples and how these disciples were unschooled They were ordinary fishermen, blue-collar workers, but yet God chose these disciples or these men to turn the world upside down. Think about Mary and Joseph. Mary was a teenager. Nobody knew Mary. Joseph was a blue-collar carpenter, but God chose these two people to be the parents, the earthly parents of the Savior of the world. Think about Bethlehem. And the details of Christmas. Think about the manger, the stable, the animals, the nameless shepherds who were there to see this Christ child. All of these are pretty insignificant details. But yet God used the insignificant things, ordinary things, to display his majesty. When you read 1 Corinthians chapter 1, you will realize that God uses the shameful things of this world to, or, or the weak things of this world to shame the strong. 1 Corinthians 1 says, Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. What we know from this text is that God uses weak things to prove his greatness. Because in our weakness, God is strong. And we know that all throughout Scripture, that God has a plan for insignificant people and ordinary people. You might be sitting here today and wondering, okay, Seth, what does this have to do with me? Well, it has everything to do with you. Because you might be sitting here saying, well, God can't use me. I'm not popular. I'm not wealthy. 
I, I don't have a, a big network of friends and inf- I don't have a lot of influence. Well, the reality is, is God can use you and I believe he will use you if you're faithful to what he has for you. And God can use you to turn this world upside down just as he's used number, a number of people. So hold on to that truth because as you think about history, most of history for the kingdom of the Lord has been written by people that we don't know about. People that didn't have a lot of influence, who were ordinary and maybe even insignificant. But if you're questioning your own life today, wondering, God, what could you have me do? Instead of thinking that way, ask God the question, God, what would you have me do? Because I know you can use me just as you have used my descendants before me. So again, why did the Savior have to come from Bethlehem? Well, because it traced from the line of David, and David was from there, and God uses insignificant, ordinary things to accomplish his greater purposes. One author, he said it this way. He said, God chose a stable so no innkeeper could boast, saying, he chose the comfort of my inn. God chose a manger so no woodworker could boast, saying, well, he chose the craftsmanship of my bed. God chose Bethlehem so no one could boast, saying, the greatness of our city brought about the Savior of the world. And God chose you and me freely and unconditionally to stop the mouth of all human boasting. Life is not about you and me. It's all about God. It's all about Jesus Christ. So don't let this Christmas season pass you by without really reflecting on why Jesus came. I don't want you to think about baby Jesus. I want you to think about the rescuer, the redeemer of your soul who came to die for you, to forgive you of your sins and give you hope and peace. When would this rescuer come? Micah then goes on in verse 3 to kind of give us an idea of when he would come. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. You may not know this, but Micah knew the prophet Isaiah. They were actually friends, and they worked together. They did ministry together. Isaiah was older than Micah, but when Isaiah gave the prophecy that you heard about last week in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, it was 30 years before Micah gave this prophecy. So I'm thinking that Micah knew about Isaiah's prophecy. When Isaiah said, behold, there will be a virgin and she will give birth to a son and he will be Emmanuel, God with us. I'm thinking Micah knew about that prophecy. So again, here he wrote about it saying, there will be a time where the people of God will be scattered from their homeland, but when she who is in labor has given birth, then the rest of the people will return back to their homeland. So Micah is saying, I know for a fact that there will be a Messiah born of a woman in God's time, and he will come and he will bring God's people back to their homeland. Well, here's the thing. The people of God in Micah's day, they didn't know when all this was going to happen. It actually happened about 100 years after Micah gave the prophecy. And then you go another 600 years or so until Jesus actually came. So the people of God, they needed a rescue for about 700 years. And then Jesus came. What does this have to do with you and me? Again, everything. Because it's been about 2,000 years since Jesus came to Bethlehem at Christmas. It's been about 2,000 years since Jesus walked on this earth. God's people in Micah's day waited about 700 years. 
We have waited over 2,000. We might wait another 2,000. We might wait another 10 days. The reality is, is we know, the Bible tells us, Jesus will come again. And he's not going to bring peace. He's going to bring war. And he's going to rally his people. And he's going to bring them back to his kingdom and in his presence forever. And until then, just like the people in Micah's day had to wait with anticipation, so we must too wait with anticipation, knowing that our great rescuer will come and he will make all things new. When will Jesus come? I wish I could tell you. But all I can tell you is he is coming and we need to be fully prepared for his coming. So if you don't have a relationship with Jesus and you're here visiting, we're glad you're here, but I wanna encourage you to don't let another day go by without trusting in this great Savior because he will radically change your life today and for the rest of your life and into eternity. And the only way to get to heaven is by repenting of your sins and believing in Jesus Christ, that he has died for your sins, he has forgiven you, he loves you, he not only has a plan for you, but he has a plan for you for all eternity. So trust in him today. The last thing that we see in this text is the question, what would this rescuer do? In verses four and five, it gives us a glimpse of what the rescuer would do. He shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. You know what's interesting? It describes this Messiah as a shepherd. And the last time I checked, the word shepherd is used as both a noun and a verb. A noun describes who the shepherd is. A verb describes what the shepherd does. We know in just these few verses in Micah who the shepherd is, who our rescuer is. And he's one with great strength and majesty and power. He is divine because he is a king from the days of old. We also know what this shepherd would do. And a shepherd, if you think of it, a shepherd knows every one of his sheep by name. And I didn't know this till this week, but if you go to the Middle East and you observe shepherds, do you know what they do every single night? They make sure that every one of their sheep enters into the sheepfold for the night to make sure they would dwell securely. And every sheep would pass underneath the rod of the shepherd to get into its sheepfold every single night. And if there was one missing, do you know what the shepherd would do? He would leave his other sheep with another shepherd and he would run and he would search high and low and go through valleys just to find this lost sheep until the sheep was found. And when he would find the sheep, he would put the sheep on his broad shoulders and he would carry the sheep back to the sheepfold. That's what Jesus does for you and me. Because oftentimes we are like sheep and we kind of wander away from God. We drift away from him. But what does Jesus do for us as our shepherd? Well, he calls us by name. He knows us by name. And he also, as we wander from him, he searches high and low until he finds us. And what does he do when he finds us? He puts us on his broad shoulders and he carries us back to his presence, to be in his presence. That's what the great shepherd does. 
So again, I, I don't want you to go through these next two weeks as we approach Christmas saying, oh yeah, baby Jesus, Bethlehem, this is great. The lights, you know, the, the gifts, Santa, elves, Christmas movies, this is all fun. No, we need to go back and say, wow, look at who this Jesus is. And look at what he does for us. And you know what I absolutely love about verse 5? It says that this shepherd is our peace. And I know most of you in this room, some of you are visiting. I'm glad you're here. And I know many of you are struggling right now. I know you're struggling with worry, with fear, with anxiety. Some of you dread Christmas because it brings back bad memories. Some of you are uh, are getting ready for Christmas without someone you love, and you just lost someone. And again, it's hard. Well, I'm here to give you a message from the Lord, and that is, Jesus is your peace. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. When Jesus came to Bethlehem in this Christmas season, do you know what the angel said about this Messiah? He said, peace on earth and goodwill to men is coming. He is coming to usher in peace, to bring in peace. And I don't know about you, but I know we need a lot of peace right now. And so let the God of all peace in Jesus Christ fill you with his peace. Only he can fill you with the peace that you ultimately need this season and for the rest of your life. In just a moment, we're going to be Closing out the service by singing one of the great Christmas carols, O Little Town of Bethlehem. And I always like to study how these carols came about and their origin. Well, Philip Brooks was a pastor who wrote these words to O Little Town of Bethlehem. And he was a pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. And it was during the time of the Civil War. And Philip Brooks, he actually was the one who... Uh, officiated Lincoln's funeral after Lincoln was assassinated. After he officiated that funeral and after the Civil War ended, he was exhausted. And so his church and his elders were nice enough to say, hey, you need a sabbatical. So he took a sabbatical and he went to the Middle East and he actually journeyed through Bethlehem. And it was around the Christmas season and it was on a Christmas Eve night where he's sitting out in a shepherd field just in Bethlehem and he's just trying to recollect some of the events that took place that Christmas evening. And, and, he, and he looked up and saw the, the stars. He looked up and saw sheep and shepherds. And he couldn't help but think about that Christmas day. Well, he came back home after writing down some thoughts, and he said, I really want to put these thoughts into words. And he just couldn't do it until a couple years go by. And finally, he woke up one day and he said, ah, here it is. And he started writing out these lyrics. Right after that, he took it to his organist, and, and, he, and he took it to his organist and said, can you put this into music? And the organist said, I'm inspired by what you wrote, but I, I really can't put it into, into music. I have no idea how to do this with, this with what you've given me. The organist didn't know until the night of Christmas Eve. And the night of Christmas Eve, he, he woke up going into Christmas, and the organist described it as a gift from God. And he wrote, O Little Town of Bethlehem, into song and into music. And that Christmas day, Philip Brooks and his organist, they take it to the children's Sunday school class, and 36 of these kids sang, O Little Town of Bethlehem, for the first time. This was December of 1868. 
hundreds of children and hundreds of, uh, of adults have been singing this classic hymn ever since. I bring this up because what inspired Philip Brooks was he was able to look back. He was able to remember that Christmas night. He was able to reflect upon the Savior and Rescuer of the world. In the same way, I encourage you as we sing this song, as we journey through the next 13 days or so, that we can all reflect back on what actually took place. It's more than just a baby in a stable in a manger. It's the rescuer of God's people.